Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I'm a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, The Edge of the Wedge. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest where it was not a Holocaust uh, survivor community. Our grandparents had come and great and parents had come from uh, Russian Poland at the turn of the previous century to flee the Tsar. Yet in 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II, my U.S. Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this experience changed our lives forever. In today's episode, we are discussing two topics, anti-Semitism in Greece and the role of the World Jewish Congress in combating anti-Semitism. Our guest today is Leon Saltiel. Leon Saltiel has a PhD in contemporary European history from the University of Macedonia in Thessaloniki, Greece. His book, The Holocaust in Thessaloniki, was the winner of the 2021 Yad Vashem International Book Prize for Holocaust Research. He's the, he is the World Jewish Congress's representative at the United Nations in Geneva and at UNESCO and the coordinator of combat of countering anti-Semitism. Leon, thank you for coming on our show. Welcome. Thank you. It's a great honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. I get to ask the first question. Could you share with us your personal connection to Holocaust and Thessaloniki and your interest in combating anti-Semitism? Um, thank you. Um, I mean, both of these topics are, of course, connected. Uh, I, come, uh, I'm a, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. My grandparents survived the Holocaust in Greece, uh, hiding in the country when the majority of their families were deported and exterminated at Auschwitz in 1943. Uh, so for me, growing up in Thessaloniki, um, Thessaloniki was a major Jewish center where at the turn of the century, of last century, the Jews constituted the majority of the city's population. So it's one of the, maybe the only major city in Europe with a majority Jewish uh, population. Uh, and that really marked uh, the history and development of the city for, for many centuries. And growing up in the city and knowing that illustrious history, but also the void and the absence of the Jews, and not only the physical absence, but also their, you know, their absence um, in, uh, in buildings, in sites, in sounds, in, in, in recipes, in, in, in everything. Like with the, with, the, with the Holocaust, not only at the physical uh, extermination of the Jews, but also the complete uh, destruction of their, of their presence and memory. So I, I started to look uh, into, into what actually happened during the war. Um, in the city, and um, and this became into uh, a PhD. Uh, that the outcome was the book, the Holocaust Thessaloniki, which, as you said, won the 2021 uh, Yad Vashem Prize. 
Uh, and I, I tried to see what was happening in the city during the anti-Jewish measures of the Nazis. How were the city institutions responding? And, and, uh, and how, how, was, how were the citizens of the city uh, um, living the Holocaust? Uh, 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 what was the impact of the Holocaust to the everyday life of the city? And, and to my, I mean, not that I, I was not surprised with my findings, but I found mostly um, indifference and even uh, sometimes uh, complicity in the, in the destruction of the Jews. And, and everybody knew more or less what was happening. The Holocaust didn't happen in a faraway corner. It didn't happen at night. It didn't happen in the woods. It happened downtown, in the city center, in daylight, in front of their neighbors. So, and, and, and you know, when I did my PhD, it was the first ever PhD in a Greek university on the subject of the Holocaust in Greece. And on purpose, I did it in a Greek university because I don't think that the Holocaust, it's something that it's, it's you know, it's, it relates to some other people. It, it happened in Thessaloniki, it's part of Greek history, it's part of Euro, European history. So I wanted to put it in the framework of modern Greek and modern European history. So that was something that I did um, and chose to do it in Greece, uh, in my native tongue, in my in the university of my native town. Um, and, and somehow this connects to the other half of your question about my work currently uh, here in Geneva, uh, which is driven a, a lot by, by this, uh, my, this experience of me growing up and these findings of my, of my academic research. Um, I work a lot about countering anti-Semitism uh, internationally and creating norms and standards on this that we can discuss later, but also safeguarding the memory of the Holocaust. And, and it could be an academic interest that triggered it, but for me, this issue is not academic. Um, we see the rise of anti-Semitism around the world. Uh, we see the decrease of the memory of the Holocaust. And this, again, it's not something that only uh, affects the Jews. Uh, we see many demonstrations against uh, the COVID-19 uh, measures. Uh, people wear the yellow star or deny the Holocaust or compare uh, uh, themselves to Anne Frank, or uh, we see Jewish anti-Semitic conspiracy myths emerging of the Jews having invented the virus or profiting from the virus or, or what have you. So these things don't only affect the Jews. This is not only anti-Semitism uh, directed against the Jews. It directs, it's directed against our democracies, the rule of law, peaceful coexistence, and the cohesive of our societies. And governments now do start to understand this. They understand that anti-Semitism is threatening um, the state, the, the, the rule of law, democracy, and they're trying to act. So, uh, so for me, this is where I see myself active uh, in trying to fight anti-Semitism and promote the, safeguard the memory of the Holocaust as a way of building peaceful and cohesive and, um, and societies where coexistence um, and exchange happened between everybody, no matter their origin, belief, etc., particularities, and without any fear whatsoever. And and Leon, is there um, a family connection to the Holocaust? Uh, yes, as I said, uh, all my grandparents were uh, victims, were, were survivors of the Holocaust in hiding, but all of their families were deported and exterminated in Auschwitz. Right, and I, I think about. 95% of the Jewish community in Thessaloniki was uh, killed, right? Was murdered. Exactly, exactly. So, 
So really, my family story is really the, the exception of history rather than the rule. Uh, yeah. The rule was arrest, deportation, extermination. My family, like my four grandparents, were among uh, the rare exceptions to be able to, to escape somehow and survive the war in, in hiding in Greece. Incredible, yeah. Um, can you please describe to us what the role is of the World Jewish Congress in combating anti-Semitism? So thank you again uh, for this question and the opportunity to present the, the, the role of the World Jewish Congress. First of all, it's important to, to, to highlight, to explain what, what the World Jewish Congress is. So we are an umbrella organization representing more than 100 Jewish communities around the world. So in a certain way, we're the federation of the Jewish communities, the International Federation of Jewish Communities, and we represent them at the international level. Uh, the World Jewish Congress was founded in 1936 here in Geneva and has a very illustrious history uh, in advocating for the rights of Jews uh, back in, in the 30s and 40s, trying to uh, assist the Jews during the Holocaust and to inform the world. You may have heard of the Gerhard Rigner telegram, which was uh, the first information to reach the West about the existence of gas chambers that was sent by Gerhard Rigner, who was the representative of the World Jewish Congress at the time in Geneva. Um, and you know, you know, uh, since in the post-war uh, era, our work on uh, reparations, the Swiss bank accounts, uh, the whole Waldheim affair, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is where we come from. And, uh, and we represent the Jewish communities at the international level. We are not working, let's say, on the local level because, of course, this is the work of the communities. But at the same time, we do help them and we do assist them in doing their work uh, locally. So that's one of our big areas of work. Um, in particular, let's say, in my in my field of work, um, a lot is in the international level. It's a standard setting and norm setting. Uh, meaning I, I cannot go to every ministry of education and tell them how to teach the Holocaust, but I can work and create guidelines about how Holocaust education should take place in, uh, let's say, in different schools. Um, so how do we do that? How do we try to have an impact uh, on, the, on the local level? First, um, we can, and, and of course, I should say that fighting anti-Semitism and uh, safeguarding the memory of the Holocaust are two main big priorities of the World Jewish Congress uh, today. So first we do, we conduct a lot of diplomatic outreach uh, daily and, and weekly. I meet uh, dozens of ambassadors and diplomats. So we try to engage with them, uh, explain our issues to them, our priorities and, and work with them, find, identify synergies and projects we can partner. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Uh, UNESCO, which is the primary international organization um, with uh, focus on education. We have signed a memorandum of understanding with them. And we work very closely on developing educational material, both on fighting anti-Semitism, but also how to teach about the Holocaust. Um, and, and now, for example, we're also working on a, on a report with them about online Holocaust denial and distortion uh, prepared by the University of, uh, of Oxford. So uh, we work with them to highlight uh, and, to, and, and to, to create the material that will be used then by governments and the local institutions to teach about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. Uh, 
together with UNESCO, we also have developed a website called abouthholocaust.org that I invite all of your listeners to visit, which provides uh, simple answers to basic questions about the Holocaust. This is done in an effort to uh, counter Holocaust um, denial and distortion and ignorance and, uh, and provide simple answers to questions that many people have around the world, but maybe have difficulty uh, finding when uh, they have to look into, let's say, a longer article. Uh, it's from authoritative sources in partnership with uh, uh, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and other credible institutions. And it's now available in around, I, I believe now 18 languages. And what is unique about this website is not only has been developed in partnership with UNESCO, which gives it also international credibility, but lately it has been integrated now with Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. So whoever of these users uh, of, of these uh, social media companies uh, searches any term related to the Holocaust, a box will appear, uh, inviting them to visit this website and get the information uh, they want. So in this way, we can reach out to a lot of young people um, around the world who don't necessarily know, and they hear all these things without being able to find the right answers. But with this platform, they can go, they can find the answers they want, and they can also share very easily uh, these things on Facebook when, uh, or at the school project, or when they speak to their teens, to their, to their classmates, et cetera, et cetera. So, that's another uh, thing uh, we're work, we have worked and it's, it's, it's advancing very well. You may have also seen the, uh, um, uh, the, um, um, our campaign on, um, uh, on Holocaust remembrance, um, uh, which, we, uh, which we do around the Holocaust Remembrance Day, we remember. And uh, people take a sign and they take a picture and it's being also distributed all across social media and we get a very, very big visibility. Uh, and this year we started Illuminate Buildings and we had, I believe, more than 100 buildings in uh, dozens of countries that were illuminated around Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, also as a way of increasing awareness. We work with the Organization for the Security Cooperation in Europe uh, to train uh, governments and the police officials about uh, the security needs of Jewish communities around the world, but also on issues around uh, online hate on the internet, how Jewish communities can report uh, online hate to social media platforms. Um, we work with the European Union institutions uh, on to sensitize them about the need to prioritize the fight against anti-Semitism. And we're very happy that they have uh, to work with them on their released, the newly released, they released a strategy against anti-Semitism uh, last year. And I know you have hosted Katarina Vosnurbein in your program as well. And we work very closely with her to assist her and to bring also on board the voice of the Jewish communities. So your 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 impact is uh, really at the at the top level of uh, societies, right? The, the top governmental level of societies. Exactly, exactly. Not so not so much at the grassroots level, although your website uh, can be used at the your website with knowledge about the Holocaust can be used at the grassroots level as well. Correct. Correct. This this observation is correct. I mean, as I said initially, we are the we represent the the Jewish people at the international level. Yeah. Um, we we leave all the ownership and the local initiatives to the communities. Yeah. At the same time, we facilitate them. We provide them with information, with training, with contacts. Uh, we bring the voice to the United Nations. So also serve as a bridge of of the local reality to the international level. 
but you're right to say that the majority of our work is, let's say, top-bottom rather than bottom-up. Okay, thank yeah. you. So with that huge umbrella of uh, initiatives, which is your, your own personal, you know, what's the top of your day-to-day -day list? Can you give us kind of a picture of what you do to fight anti-Semitism? Yes, so, so I'm based here in Geneva and uh, my primary interlocutors are uh, the UN diplomatic missions as well as all the UN agencies that are based here. So a big part of what we do is to try to, to, try to raise awareness, to build partnerships and to, and to become a stakeholder in, in everything that's happening in the city. I'll give you also a few examples. First of all, today we held, um, a training um, on issues around the Holocaust, the memory of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, uh, together with the UN Holocaust Program and UNESCO, for all diplomats posted in New York, Geneva, and Paris. We had more than 100 participants. Of these are diplomats posted in the three main UN cities um, from all regions of the world uh, and all religious groups. So it was really an amazing outreach where for two hours they sat and listened and got information about why the, the, knowing the knowledge about the Holocaust is relevant for their work at the UN today. Uh, last September at the session of the Human Rights Council, uh, we spearheaded a joint statement together with Austria, Czech Republic and Slovakia signed by 53 countries. The first ever time that so many countries co-signed a statement on the need to fight anti-Semitism internationally. So again, we work to build coalitions and bring awareness, raise awareness about the issue. We're very active on interfaith dialogue. So we work here in Geneva, we have many umbrella organizations like the World Council of Churches or the Muslim World League. So work with them together to see how we can promote and protect human rights and build partnerships and dialogue. Uh, something that your, your audience may, may know is that here in Geneva, we have the Human Rights Council, which can be a platform for good, but also it's a, it's a platform where also Israel is often singled out and biased reports come out. And you may know of the, of the notorious item seven on the agenda of the Human Rights Council, which is a permanent agenda item against, uh, against Israel. So we are also trying to work uh, to explain with diplomatic missions why this is bad and see how we can uh, diminish a lot of this bias against Israel. So it's really varied, it's complex, uh, it's, it's difficult, but at the same time, we, we make progress. So it's, uh, it's an important fight. Leon, it's, it's, not a, it's not a secret that the, the organization of Islamic countries mm -hmm. is uh, forming a block against for Palestinians against Israel. That's how they see it. And that um, a lot of those countries have anti-Semitic policies uh, in general. So do you feel that your interfaith outreach to those uh, representatives in the United Nations has any effect? Well, we do um, have an effect. Um, I'll give you, I mean, of course, you know, everything we do at the UN is incremental. You know, we're not going to go from one to 100, you know, in, in one day. We, we're building up. Uh, contacts, uh, you know, uh, uh, events, uh, statements, as I described some of these initiatives. Um, we were invited uh, to speak at an event organized by the Islamic group 
uh, last week, and we made a statement about the priorities of the Jewish world and the fight against anti-Semitism. We're invited to conferences organized by Muslim countries or in the Muslim world, and we attend those conferences. Um, at the last meeting of the Human Rights Council, I had the honor to deliver a statement on behalf of the WGC and the Muslim World League, the first ever joint statement between a major Muslim and Jewish group, where we both pledged uh, to work together uh, to promote human rights around the world. Last year, we held a joint Ramadan dinner, a joint Ramadan interfaith dinner, where Jewish and Muslim leaders took the floor to wish, to express, to share good wishes to one another. And hopefully, if there are no COVID restrictions this time around, we can do it physically uh, in, in April. So, you know, we see goodwill. We do a lot of public things. It's not hidden anymore. It's public. We are there. We express our views. Uh, we talk to a lot of Muslim countries. We talk to Arab countries. I'm meeting Arab ambassadors and Muslim ambassadors throughout uh, my work here. And, and I think you see things are changing. And uh, while they recognize some of the shortcomings, we're working to build uh, more partnerships and more goodwill. And I think that's what we have to do. There's no alternative. There's no alternative. All right. Um, do you personally experience uh, or observe any anti-Semitism uh, in your work? Um, I'm, 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 I'm happy to say I don't. Um, I mean, um, we live in Geneva, which has um, uh, quite a spirit of openness and inclusivity and inclusiveness. And, and so there is, you know, here in the international Geneva, you don't really see open expressions of, of, of um, let's say, of hate or of anti-Semitism. But I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm pretty vocal. I'm pretty active on social media. Uh, I've written books. I give interviews. Um, and I haven't experienced, let's say, firsthand. Of course, I'm identified as the Jew, you know, wherever I go, and maybe people, uh, I don't know, ignore me or they don't pay attention to me because of that. But it's not like they will come and express to me openly anything anti-Semitic. And, and of course, I mentioned my work in Greece, and I do speak out a lot about the Holocaust in Greece or about anti-Semitism in Greece. Happy to discuss more with you. Uh, and there again, I don't really receive a lot of anti-Semitism, maybe because I don't live there, maybe because with COVID everything was online, but I'm happy to say that I'm exempt from a lot of these uh, nuances, if I may say it so politely. Of course, growing up in Greece, I did face anti-Semitism, uh, or at least, let's say, ignorance at school or in the, during my military service or at the university. That's what I want to talk to you about. Anti-Semitism in Greece today, but you can also talk about your own experience and, and whether it's changed, gotten more since you were a young person or, or go ahead. Yes. So, yes, I mean, there was, if you may have seen, you know, ADL had a survey in 100 countries a few years ago. Uh, and Greece ranked as the most anti-Semitic country Definitely in Europe, I think it was after Iran or something. Wow. So it was almost, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, 70%, which was very high, like 70% of Greeks today uh, embrace anti-Semitic opinions. More than Iran, yeah. Yeah, it could be even more than Iran, correct, correct. I don't remember. So we did, we did, a, we had done a study that was part of um, around the same time, and we found almost similar results. 
Uh, I believe that was around 2015, 16, if I don't, uh, if I remember correctly. So indeed we found widespread ignorance and often antisemitism expressed in Greece, which it's, it's very, it's vocal, it's oral, it's not uh, physical, meaning there are not so many physical attacks against individual Jews. There are some attacks against, let's say, Holocaust monuments or Jewish cemeteries or synagogues, but the majority is verbal. And it's sort of like myths and conspiracies and ignorance all bundled together with sort of like um, anti-Semitism, which it's very, it comes from historic reasons or from the church. Um, and also we found, interestingly enough, it comes from a sense of victimhood um, of, of the Greek people, which means that anti-Semitism is related to some kind of, let's say, jealousy towards the Jews. Um, I'm happy to say that these things are changing. Uh, that the Greek government now has really uh, taken on board a lot of these uh, issues. Um, Greece is currently chairing the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance or IRA, and you must, I'm sure you have heard of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Yes. yes, we carry so Greece is now among the leaders in this fight. Um, they are very close with Israel, as you know, also strategically. Um, edu Holocaust education now has come to many schools with many projects. Um, the media is a lot more now changing uh, their attitude and they educate the public about these uh, important topics. And I'm very happy to say, I see it from the impact of, of my work. Um, I, was in, um, I was in Berlin uh, last week for the international premiere of, of a movie, which, is, which uses some of my findings in my research. And it was done by two young Greek um, movie directors. And they speak about the Holocaust experience in Thessaloniki, in Greece. What, what's uh, the name of, please tell us the name of the movie. Yes, the movie is called The City and the City. And it was, uh, the international premiere was in the Berlinale last week. And it will be featured in film festivals around the world. So, and I see a lot of these things happening, uh, which is very positive to see that the Holocaust now and anti-Semitism are not a taboo issue anymore. We're going beyond being a taboo. It's becoming now a part of pop culture. It's becoming the media, it's on television, it's in schools, it's in public events. Uh, politicians uh, speak about it, they tweet about it, they write articles about it. Um, another- um, In Greece, in Greece, in Greece, right? in Greece. everything is yeah. in Greece, yes. Um, you know, another of one of my publications, which is more or less an offshoot of my, of my PhD is a book of letters sent by three Jewish mothers from the ghetto. So two years ago, this was turned into a documentary where the president of Greece participated and read some of these letters and, and you know, she's crying towards the end when she's reading those letters. So I don't think the president of Greece would ever participate in something like this 20 years ago, but they did two years ago. And now it's commonplace that the Greek politicians uh, are speaking about it, are participating in events. So it's all very good and positive, and we hope that this will continue. Yes, that's great. That's great. Great to hear also. Mm -hmm. um, so, Leon, um, is there, are, do you have recommendations for people at the grassroots level, um, our listeners, us? Uh, what can we do um, to help fight anti-Semitism, to help end it? Thank you for this question, Evelyn. I think it's, it's a very important question. And of course, you, you drive me to, uh, to speak about concrete issues and not uh, my, you know, <laughs> things that seem a bit far away from home. 
Um, I think, first of all, it's important to be informed, to be aware, and to also know what antisemitism is and how it manifests itself. Uh, for that, I could recommend your, your viewers the, to, to consult the IRA definition on antisemitism, to read it, to read around it, uh, because it's important to be able to identify antisemitism. Uh, often, you know, it's disguised as anti-Zionism or in conspiracy myths or in, in, um, in uh, uh, populist discourse. And if you don't really know what it is, you cannot find it. But once you know uh, the memes or the stereotypes or the, the comparisons used, you can identify antisemitism and you can be smarter and you can identify it. Uh, so I think that's important to know because, you know, antisemitism is not anymore you dirty Jew. It's, it's more... It's smarter than that. So it's more, exactly, it's more fine-tuned, it's more cleverly put. It's not this brute anti-Semitism of the Nazis anymore. So I think it's important for your readers to be able to identify it. Uh, so they should look up the IHRA a, definition, the definition of anti-Semitism. Anti it's a good start. And of course, read more and has 11 illustrative examples, which are part of the definition, which help you a little bit understand the modern contemporary manifestations of anti-Semitism. Right. So that I would put as, as number one. Number two is work with the local Jewish community. You know, if, if they feel anti-Semitism, if they see anti-Semitism, if, if they want to be active uh, to fight anti-Semitism, work with the existing Jewish communities, their synagogue, the Jewish Federation, because there they can find other people, they can partner, they can create a network, and they can help each other. Um, third, I would say a report anti-Semitism. So if you see anti-Semitism, report it. Very if it's important. online, you can report it to the social media companies. There's a button or often under in Facebook or Twitter or all these events to, to report hateful content. Yes. So report the content. Uh, of course, to report it, you have to be, as I said, educated to know what anti-Semitism is, to be able to explain why this is anti-Semitic. But report it. Uh, to the social media company, but also to the Jewish community or Jewish community institutions that work on, and many countries have many of these institutions that record anti-Semitism, uh, but also there are state uh, and non-Jewish entities, either government or the police or uh, non-Jewish NGOs that do report online hate or offline hate. So it's important to, to report because often instances of anti-Semitism go unreported and it's not part of the statistics. So we don't know, we don't have a genuine impression of what's happening if we don't know the incidents, what the events and the typology of, of anti-Semitic uh, hate. Um, last but not least, uh, as, as, you, as you say, it's important to work at the local level. You know, your listeners are living in their communities, the kids go to school, they work in the neighborhood. So it's important to work with the local politicians, uh, the local police, the educators, or the local newspapers. Because I believe that every you know, change starts at home. And, uh, and they can have a greater impact by working with these local people who they see every day than trying to influence the UN or their, you know, their federal government or, um, or uh, things like that. So I really encourage them to find a niche on the local level. They can use tools developed, let's say, by UNESCO or by international organizations, because that gives more legitimacy and more expertise to their work. 
but definitely try to find a niche uh, locally, work with a local priest, with a local uh, imam, to have a program against hate or for you know dialogue. All these things I think help. And, 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 and we here, we're always glad to receive news about good work done uh, on, the, on the ground level. And often we highlight that in our work at the United Nations or elsewhere. So everything they do, it's important. And if they can also publicize it even better, so we can learn about it and use it in our, in our work. Great, I think that's excellent advice. Um, educate yourself, look up the definition of anti-Semitism at IHRA. We, we'll include it at the bottom of this podcast, by the we way. We'll include it. Um, and so then you know what is anti-Semitism and what is legitimate criticism of Israel, for instance, where is the line? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, make sure to report it. Uh, somehow, somewhere, you can find many options online where to report anti-Semitism. We have to know. It has to be in the statistics. You can really add value by reporting incidents that you experience or observe. And also get involved with Jewish organizations that fight anti-Semitism. Make them stronger. Uh, with your activities or donations or whatever uh, way you choose, um, all that is better than doing nothing, right? Of course. And, and also, you know, um, in their discussions with friends and neighbors, if something comes up, they should know how to respond. Exactly. Because, you know, uh, having the argument. So that's why I spoke about educate yourself, be aware, read the newspapers. You know, for me, that's a basic, but we have to say it because it's not, uh, we shouldn't take it as a given. Uh, if somebody says what's happening now, I don't know, in the Middle East or X, Y, Z, they have to know what we're talking about. Uh, They have to know to be able to respond. Um, And as we often say on our show and how to respond without anger. So if someone literally, you know, Jews who who pass as white, and we won't have that discussion right now, but I grew up as the only child in my uh, public school classes in the Midwest, you know, it, it's easy for someone to say to me, and if someone did in ninth grade, a joke about Jews. At the time, I didn't even know what anti-Semitism was. But to be able to say without anger, you understand I'm Jewish and that's hurtful. And to educate. I always look at those opportunities to educate others. But it takes practice, on my part too, not to immediately flare, but instead to respond in a way that the person can hear what you're saying, the other person can hear what you're saying. So, oh, Felix, uh, I understand with you 100%. I, I believe that if you respond with anger, you lose, you lose a lot. Uh, the other person will listen to you. Uh, the more, uh, let's say, uh, you, 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 you keep your temper down, the better you are to access the other person, to engage in the conversation, to be friendly, and to explain to them why what they said is wrong. And as you said, it's hurtful. Um, and sometimes it's even more poignant and more... Um, more direct than just shouting or, or being aggressive. I call it the Socratian method of, of <laughs> uh, you know, uh, my ancient forefather of Socrates, yes. who engaged in a discussion with people as a way of, of showing them why they are wrong. And this actually made them more angry than just shouting at them. Yes, asking questions. Their asking ignorance. questions. If somebody says Israel is an apartheid state and it, it stole land, the land of the Palestinians, Ask them questions on what they base that information. Have they heard about the rights of Palestinians in Israel and that they are represented in parliament, for instance? So 
ask questions and then people have to listen to themselves instead of listening to you. And that's very- 100%. Powerful. I do it all the time. It always works. <laughs> Good. Okay. So now it's time for your last words, but we would like you to share with our audience what the three of us were talking about ahead of time about European, uh, contemporary European history and contemporary European Jewish history. So please share that as, your, as part of your last words. Yes. So, so, you know, a lot of the work we do at the World Jewish Congress, a lot of the work I do working on, let's say, the Holocaust in Greece, but also now I'm helping a lot of researchers and activists all around the world in, in these topics. I'm speaking to you, like I'm doing a lot of, of these things and I welcome every opportunity to engage, um, is to really uh, speak about the Jewish experience, but also the Jews, not only as victims of antisemitism or as victims of the Nazis during the Holocaust, but as proud players who have been in Europe uh, for more than for thousands of years, who have had an enormous contribution to world civilization, um, to culture, to the arts, to architecture, to music, to the science, to business, to what have you, to politics, to society. So I want to see that we are uh, we are proud and we are stakeholders and we have a seat around the table on all topics. So. Um, I, I try to also encourage this positive agenda, this engagement. When I meet ambassadors, I'm not only speaking about my issues, I'm trying to see what it's important for them and what's important the agenda and try to see how we can be uh, useful to them and they to us. So it's a two-way street, it's not a one-way street. In that sense, always when I speak, let's say about the Holocaust, I don't want to speak about it in terms of Holocaust studies or Jewish studies. Uh, I feel that it's, you put the Holocaust aside from the mainstream of European history or of world history. So when I, I do my, I did my PhD, I always stressed that it's part of contemporary Greek history or contemporary European history, because the Holocaust happened in Europe, the governments and the peoples of Europe were involved, the Jews were victims, but everybody was involved. And if you say it's Holocaust or Jewish studies, and it's not part of modern Greek history, you put aside, and it's not part of the Greek national narrative, but I, I'm, I'm trying to say that no, these are contemporary issues. These are issues that affect everybody. It happened in Greece. It happened with the complicity of Greeks. It happened against Greek citizens who were Jewish faith, but they were Greek citizens. So it should be integrated and as part of the Greek uh, narrative and of the Greek uh, history and of the Greek psyche, and thus also go to Greek schools or to the Greek parliament or to legislation, et cetera, et cetera. If it's not integrated, how can you say teach that schools? You know, we had an incident in Greece. Um, uh, in Greece, there is a group of um, of, uh, uh, of villages that was they were burned by the Nazis as a form of reprisals, and they have a network of these of these uh, villages that they call martyr villages. And there was an effort to include Thessaloniki in this network because they also. Um, other than the, you know, lost its Jewish population, but also the non-Jewish as well. They were executed by the Nazis. And the response was no, because number one, uh, the Jews were not Greek. And number two, um, the Holocaust didn't happen in Greece, it happened elsewhere. So, you know, also for these politicians back in the nineties, the Holocaust was something distant. Of course, there was an outcry and they reversed the decision in North Thessaloniki and the Holocaust is included in this network. But I'm saying that you start with this, uh, a lot with these uh, assumptions and we shouldn't reinforce these assumptions. We should try to fight to integrate 
this history within the mainstream. I will just add that I wrote a Times of Israel blog post because I was very annoyed at a movie that was about the Thunder Commandos uh, uprising in Auschwitz and they didn't talk about the Greek Thunder Commandos. They made it seem like it was just Eastern Europeans. And so I literally wrote a Times of Israel blog post quoting from the um, Greek survivor from Auschwitz book. It's got a funny title, like um, a leader of bread or something. I'm sure you know which one I mean. And people should realize that the Holocaust happened in Greece and what Greek Thunder Commandos did in Auschwitz. So I just like to- That's another question within the Jewish world to find a place for Greek Jewry or Sephardic Jewry within exactly. the, let's say the Ashkenazic mainstream. That's another question. I didn't go there. I spoke <laughs> about the non-Jewish world, but there is another separate fight within the Jewish world to highlight these topics. Exactly. So maybe you'll come back and talk about that because it's something I'm very interested in. With great okay. pleasure. Okay, so time to wrap up to thank you for coming on our show. Thank our listeners. Also, I encourage everyone who hasn't yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again Is Now, to see it. You can see it on Amazon. You can see it on YouTube. Also, you can get more information about my free Holocaust theater project at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And as we sign off, every time we say everyone, without putting yourself in physical danger, if you can, speak up against anti-Semitism and hate.